So your box can move. We can go anywhere he likes. Mmm. Good, isn't it? Anywhere at all in the whole university. Is it my imagination? Or is this taking longer than normal? The room's still inside the box. This isn't a knock through. No. Doctor, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Hey, we got there. Hey everybody, welcome back to Who and Company. My name is Brent. And I'm Drew. And there are many different ways to celebrate your Doctor Who fandom. You may be part of a local group that watches new episodes together. You might make it a special occasion with your family. Or you might take part in a larger celebration that is one of the many amazing Doctor Who conventions found around the world. This month we're focusing on one of the greatest aspects of Doctor Who fandom, the convention circuit. Today we have organizers, or showrunners if you will, from three different Doctor Who related sci-fi conventions here in America. And after that, the wait is over. We'll be discussing the pilot, the first episode of Series 10. So, if you haven't seen it yet, there will be spoilers. And we'll get started right after this. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, to begin, why don't you tell us your name, uh, the convention you work with, and what you do for that convention? Hey there, my name is Alan. I work with Who Lanta. Um, obviously, it's a Doctor Who convention in Atlanta. It's a very <laughs> clever name, um, and I am uh, in charge of programming, guest recruiting, and those are the two main jobs that I do. Hi, I'm Ken Deep. I'm the showrunner of L.I. Who. It's Long Island Doctor Who uh, every November. And um, much like Alan and our next guest, we don't have just one job. We have about a million of them. (laughs) (laughs) And hi, I'm Taylor Dethridge. I work for Chicago TARDIS, and I work for the uh, small business that puts on Chicago TARDIS, Alien Entertainment. I am the current head of registration uh, at Chicago TARDIS. I also do the social media for our convention. And yeah, like Ken was saying, I'm kind of a jack of all trades when it comes to covering other jobs. Uh, we have issues. I try to solve the problem. Brilliant. You're a fixer. I am a fixer. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, with working with conventions, you have to be a jack or jill of all trades to, it's, it's a juggling act. It is yeah. absolutely a juggling act. Um, I can't speak for Brent, but I can tell you of my own experience with con- Doctor Who conventions. My first Doctor Who convention was um, Li Who 2 three years ago. 
had never been to one before, and now I've gotten a chance to uh, visit all of your lovely conventions, with the exception of yours, Taylor. I haven't been able to make it out to Chicago during Thanksgiving. Um, that time is a bit sacrosanct at, uh, at my household, so I'd love to do it at some point in time. Well, I, I, So that she doesn't sound like she's tooting her own horn, I've been <laughs> to Chicago Tardis for a decade now, and it's a fantastic event. Fantastic, well, yeah. As we're talking about that, I'll tell you that my first Doctor Who convention was Chicago Tardis. But it oh. was years ago. It was uh, 97. Oh, my gosh. It wow. Was, uh, <laughs> Sylvester McCoy was there. Uh, Louise Jameson. Um, somebody from Blake 7. Who was that? I can't remember. But um, Jan, Jan Chappelle? No, no. She... I, She's remember. she's one of Louise's best friends and was on Blake Seven and she usually comes to things with when Louise is around. Oh okay, uh, yeah I don't I don't remember seeing her. I, I know uh, okay. Jeffrey Beavers was there and um, Caroline John. Uh, Caroline John was there. Oh. Yeah. And uh, who was the uh, who was the stuntman? Uh, Terry. Uh, Terry Walsh. Terry Walsh. He was there. He was a nice guy. Yeah, that was a while back, <laughs> but it was a great convention. Loved it. I'm glad to hear that. I'm kind of curious, since the three of our guests are in a professional um, situation when it comes to conventions, as far as your own personal experiences as attendees, what was that like for you when you first started going to conventions yourselves? Hmm. Um, God, the first one I ever went to was a Star Trek thing back in in the eighties in, in back in Florida. And I remember it was uh, the first one I ever went to was a weird one. It had, um, George Takei there, but it also had Mark Strickson. So that was my first time seeing a doctor who guest. And it was really cool. I mean, I, I never really did a whole lot of conventions, um, up until I moved to Atlanta about 15 years ago. That's when I really started going heavily. So I've been doing, uh, my con for 12 years so i didn't have that much convention attending experience prior to doing my own my first convention would have been maybe 1984 it was probably a creation convention and it was much uh, a similar story where it's a it's a mix of things it was nichelle nichols i think robert anglin um can't remember <laughs> anybody else on it. It all starts to blend into one. And the second convention would have had a Doctor Who guest. Also, mm-hmm. Matthew Waterhouse, I think. But influential in like my con life was Icon here on Long Island. I went to see John Pertwee. Oh, wow. He owned the convention. You know, like the way he does. Larger than life. <laughs> and that at that point... I enjoyed going to conventions because pre-internet, it was a way of meeting other people and sort of shopping for geeky stuff, which now is so easy to do. But back then was like climbing Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my that that moment where you realize conventions are my place was with John Pertwee because he just, like I said, he owned it every minute of every day from the cape and the velvet and the storytelling and all that kind of stuff. My first Doctor Who only convention, though, was a Spirit of Light event in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania in 85. John Pertwee, Colin Baker, 
Caroline Ford, Janet Fielding, Terry Walsh, who you just mentioned. Um, and that was also just mind-blowing to me that there was a convention of just Doctor Who. And yeah, I used to go to the, when Wizard World wasn't the entity that it is now, in the 90s, uh, with my dad. Uh, I grew up watching, you know, nerdy television. I loved, uh, still love the X-Men a lot. We used to go and buy comic books at the Wizard World shows when I was about 8, 9, 10 years old. And then my first Doctor Who convention was, in fact, uh, Chicago TARDIS in 2008. And the uh, guest of honor was Elizabeth Slayton. Wow. And it was, oh yeah, and it was the one and only time I ever met her. Uh, while before I started working for Alien that puts on Chicago Tardis. And she was the most vibrant and kind woman. I, one of my deepest, I don't want to say regrets, it's not really regret, but one of my deepest wishes would be that I would, I, if she was alive now, I'd probably be working with her. And she was a lovely woman. Wow. So these different experiences that you've all had, how has that influenced the way that you run your own cons? I think that, um, I guess it's kind of like retail. I mean, when you are a customer, you know how customers, how you want to see customers treated. So when you're the one that's sort of like the manager of the store, you know how you want people who come to you to be treated. And when they leave, to have had a good experience and to be able to say positive things about you. And you know how you want your staff to interact with with those kind of with the public. So I think that, um, you know, attending, you see it from every angle. And there's good things and there's bad things. And so I think it helps you really kind of hone in on what the good things are and how things can be done well. Yeah, what Alan says is is right on the money. When I started the first staff meeting for the very first Ally Who, I said to my all-volunteer staff, we have to treat every attendee um, the way we want to be treated. It's like a customer service business. Mm-hmm. I, I hate, I, one of the things that I I learned not to do was I hated going to conventions where it seemed like you were a nuisance to people. Um, well, then why am I coming here? You know, that's that was a something I knew I didn't want to see happen. So yeah, it, it's it's right on the money to say how. I, I think the other another thing is is just setting the tone. Um, a couple of times being interviewed about running a con, people will say things like, you're always so calm when I see you, which is <laughs> not true. I'm just doing a good job hiding it. But <laughs> the, the is, uh, if I look like I'm panicking, what's my staff going to do? They're going to panic. So we all just have to, you know, if you, if you give off the, um, if, if you let, if you show people that you're letting things roll off your back and, and you're just solving problems and, it's not a time to light your hair on fire or go crazy or something. <laughs> That's going to translate to everybody else, I hope. And it seems to be working. I would say a thoughtfulness of, um, I'm that kind of person where I haven't been in it for so long that I can't afford to not stop and think, remember when you weren't doing this? 
what did you want? Um, and that the fandom is always continue, continuously evolving. So there are groups, both in Chicago, we have a lot of university groups where professors, uh, we have like personal relationships with professors that uh, they have a bunch of students who are now 19 years old uh, learning about Doctor Who in classes and they'll bring them to our convention. So I'm always trying to think of, well, if we reach out to them, what do they want? As well as the people who've been coming to our show for 17 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, being thoughtful about how you connect those two ends of the community, that's something I always try to bring into uh, our show. You know, and if you're, in the, if you're in the Doctor Who community, the last thing you want to do is see your friends and peers, for lack of a, a better word, see them taken advantage of or not have a good time or or upset them you know true i think that when you're talking about the audience evolving i think that one of the aspects of that and um i also work for a big convention called dragon con and have uh saw this firsthand where um you know you you got kind of used to the old hands who had always been around who Mm -hmm. had been with dr who since you know tom baker and all that stuff, PBS. But to watch it change over the years when this whole new influx of, of people came in with the new series, and mm-hmm. for a while the, the older series was like really not in vogue, and everything was you know David Tennant and Eccleston, mm-hmm. and it's changed so much. The blend has changed so much, and so I think running the event, it's like you have to find a way to strike a good balance. You have to know your mm-hmm. audience. You have to know who comes to your convention and says, you know, know how many, you know how much do I skew toward classic or toward new or how much can I do a a good even blend of the two? How do you present both things to your audience so that they, so everybody has a great time? Yeah, I gotcha. So what is absolutely necessary to have a successful con aside from the relation that you have with your con goers? What is it when you are looking in the planning stages for a convention? I know Alan, you're starting to touch on that about a balance between the two is there like one thing that you're like all right got to do this got to make sure that this is this is available to the the convention and our guests wow um i think a a a good varied program you know you don't want it to be all panels and you don't want it to be all you know whatever it has to be something that you have such a good variety of things that anybody can come and have a great time uh, not that's just topics. That's uh, the kind of events they can attend. I mean, at ours, we have a, a Bowie tribute band that's going to be playing. <laughs> so, you know, we just want, you know, we try to do as many different kinds of things as possible. And I think another another thing that's really essential is establishing a good relationship with the guests and if they work with agents, with their agents, um, because all these folks know each other. And they all talk to each other, and they will say whether they had a good time at your convention and whether they were treated well and whether it's something that they can recommend to their friends that they should come and do as well. So I think that those two things are kind of like the, the keystones. Yeah, I, um, I think it's essential to, to innovate every year, especially mm-hmm. yeah. fan conventions are up against <laughs> the professional conventions, the Wizard World, the Comic mm-hmm the world 
who have money to throw at everything. Yeah. And we don't have that. So we have to be creative. We're literally like classic Doctor Who. The, the yeah. television shows of the time could spend all the money they want and make Battlestar Galactica, for example. <laughs> uh, but Doctor Who had to say, well, we have $12 or 12 pounds. What are we going to do with it? That's the fan conventions compared to the professional conventions. We have to always be innovating, whether that's in the programming or, or like Alan's saying, um, finding how to, to give something to everybody. It's a, it's a huge challenge, but let's face it, we're creative people, and we appreciate creativity, and we surround ourselves with creative people. We're, we're geeks. That's what we are. We're creative. I would say that having a staff that you trust is a uh, key. And mm. our staff is an interesting blend of, uh, you know, very classic fans who helped my boss found this convention in 1999. And then um, that were around from Visions, which was the convention that existed before Chicago TARDIS. And then there are, you know, people who are in their mid to late 20s, myself included, that are now the, as Ken says, the innovative parts of this. So we have like a gaming team of people. They do board gaming at our convention. It's very successful. It's very attractive. Um, and we all, uh, we all understand how important it is to communicate with each other and respect each other's ideas. So you're always going to have people who have seen this going on for a long time that have really important insight that they should pass down to the people now coming into this and planning it themselves. Uh, and then you have the, um, you know, for instance, the gaming group, like I was using the example of, who have ties to the local nerd community in Chicago. We have, you know, you go to bars. We have... Um, groups that meet all over the city in cafes. There's a large scene here. They have those friends and those connections. So I think it's really important for those two sides, just like the attendees, to uh, talk to each other and listen to each other because we can learn a lot from each other. You know, one of the biggest things is um, to take a chance on trying something, whether it works or it mm -hmm. doesn't. And if it mm -hmm. doesn't, you don't do it again. Um, True. But that's, that's part of that innovation. One mm -hmm. of the things too that's not easy to do is when something isn't working to say, well, we have, we can't do that anymore. Sometimes it's oh, obvious, yeah. but sometimes it's not obvious, and that's difficult. It is. Oh, absolutely. We've done a lot of different kinds of game shows, and some of them have been great, and some of them have you know have been a little less so. Currently, well, we used to do one that was called the uh, twenty-five thousand dollar pyramid of Mars. And we had a guy who dresses up like Sutek, and he played the host. And if you got a question wrong, he would, you know, destroy you or whatever. And so wow. now we're doing now we're doing Gallifrey Game Night, which is Hollywood Game Night on NBC oh. or whatever it is. And we just adapted it to our own thing. And that's been a we've done that the last two years, and that's been a lot of fun. So we have people from our guests who are the celebrity panelists, and then somebody from the audience on each team. So that's been a lot of fun. You notice that a lot of this that we're talking about goes back around to the connection between the people who are coming to your con and and the celebrity guests, the people that we all admire. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, people basically come to a convention either to hang out with their friends and be part of the community or come 
say thank you to their heroes. And that's mm-hmm. that second group. When you play a game show or you have a, an interesting panel, you try something creative, there's a bond that happens between the audience and, and the celebrity. And that's what people remember most about an event is that those moments, right? Like, could you believe Mm -hmm. what happened? I mean, everyone in Doctor Who fandom knows the stories of the water pistols between Troughton and Pertwee. (laughs) Right. (laughs) For legendary, right? And all that stuff is born out of these little moments. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so you try to to think to yourself, what's going to be the next thing? You know, let, let create an environment where magic can happen. You know, at our convention last year, we had we planned to have our the Bowie tribute band play because this was right after Bowie had passed, and then right. in April Prince had passed away also, and the the band uh, kind of fell through. We didn't get to do it, so what we did instead was we had a sort of like a karaoke Bowie slash Prince. We just all we did was play their music videos on the big screen, and people danced and sang, and it was the simplest thing to put together, and it was so great. Like people had so much fun doing that. That's one of the things that just like you couldn't have, you couldn't have planned it to be a big staged event and it have the same impact that it had. We just did a, an air guitar contest after seeing Capaldi play the guitar. Nice, <laughs> it like natural. We bought a bunch of blow up guitars that you'd get for a bar mitzvah or a birthday party or something, mm-hmm. and just let people jam. And that it, is fantastic. But. It's what people bring to the event. If they're there to have a good time and they're willing to let their guard down, they're going to have a great time. And that's what happened. Because it's a safe place where they can beat themselves, be as wacky as they want to be. I would think another part of the uh, success of your cons would also be your guests, like you were saying. So how do you go about selecting your guests? Is it random or is, is there a theme you do or is it just availability or what? You know, it's availability. And um, affordability. And uh, when I'm doing it, I always try to do some kind of theme. Um, Sometimes. Sometimes it just doesn't work. But um, I try to have some kind of theme in mind that we can plan all of the programming around. And then halfway through the year, somebody cancels and, you know, it all falls (laughs) apart. But you you end up with some great guests anyway. Um, But it all comes down to who is available, who you can afford to get, how you can... Uh, spread the budget the best, you know, to get as many different people from each part of the show. I always like to have somebody from new series, from from the classic series, somebody behind the scenes, you know, like a writer, director, uh, prop maker, that kind of thing uh, to get. So when you're doing like your onstage Q&As and those kind of things, your audience gets a full picture of what it is to do Doctor Who from the actor point of view, from the writer point of view, that kind of thing. So I think it's, you know, you just, it's all budget. It's all, and who is available at the time that you're asking. You know, it's funny that, that Alan is going first in this order <laughs> because he really does set the exact tone, like with, with, with what I'm going to say right after him. Um, <laughs> you start with a theme and then it of course goes horribly right. wrong. Or, Every yeah, time. That's right. Um, <laughs> You, you try to have some kind of vision as to what you want to see, but you also have to have the flexibility of realizing um, it really comes down to, uh, as previously mentioned, availability, um, uh, money, budget, things like that. Uh, the other thing that I 
that I, uh, I, I try to find out, if possible, is if there's any kind of connections that we don't know about. So mm. a perfect example is that Colin Spall, Fraser Hines, and Terry Malloy all know each other and all are great, like, have great comedic talents. Mm-hmm. If you put three of them in the room, you're done. Your, your, your sides are going to be busted because you're going to be laughing from joke after joke and wit after wit. It's just, they're great. They're, they're, they're comic genius together. Yeah, you um, don't even need a moderator. Just put them there and just let them talk to each other. And yeah. it'll be the most entertaining hour you will see. There are, there are these little connections that sometimes you don't realize are, are out there. Uh, and as well as just, um, I, my own personal take, when I know a guest is looking forward to coming to the event, mm-hmm. it's night and day for me. When someone says, I'm really looking forward to coming to Long Island, mm. they're wanting to be there means that they're bringing the right energy to the convention. Oh, yeah. That makes so much difference. Mm-hmm. We try to get a, well, this year we're doing uh, like a, cla- we always do like a classic Who theme part, and then we bring new series guests into it. So this year, our classic Who theme is the 80s. Last year, it was the 60s. And when we choose, especially our new series guests, we, um, and this goes back to, like I said, my boss was um, the creator and co-con-chair of Visions, which is the predecessor of Chicago TARDIS. And that was a multi-fandom convention. So for new series guests, we always try to get somebody who's not just been in Doctor Who, maybe, but has been something else. Because we are aware of the competitive nature, as Ken was saying before, of conventions now. We have um, C2E2 in our area, Wizard World Chicago. People want to come to this, you know, for the guests as much as they want to come to it to hang out. And that's a reality. One of the things that Taylor mentioned, though, is the, the competitive nature of, of conventions. Let's also state, for the record, I think I can speak from the other guests as well as some of the other cons, Doctor Who fan conventions, <laughs> we don't compete. We actually have really excellent no. relationships. Yeah. Yes, we all like each other. <laughs> and, and, and it's because we're part of a community. It really yeah. is. And so there isn't that sense of, well, I have to do this because these guys are there, so I need to go through these guys. No, it's not like that at all. Quite the opposite. The, the more successful the cons are, the, the better we are as a whole. True. Well, let me ask you this, because we've talked a lot about what it takes to make a good con and, and choosing guests. What are the number one challenges when you put a convention together? What are some of the things that can go wrong or you really work hard? I mean, okay, okay. I, I know that I just put my foot in my mouth. <laughs> but but if we could keep it to an, uh, a less than an hour conversation. <laughs> so when you... When you <laughs> Alan's going to say one word, I bet. I'm betting. I'm I want to hear this one word, Alan. I'm going all in right now. <laughs> oh, gosh. Now I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is something that Ken said, and that's guest cancellation. And it hap- for us, it happens every year. Somebody... You, you make plans, you book flights, and somebody cancels. And, you know, one time it was because, you know, one of the guests' grandfather had passed away and the funeral was that weekend. You know, you can't, you, 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 you know, you have to be flexible with those kind of things. Um, so I would say that 
being able to rejuggle your plans when a guest or you know multiple guests who you've you've had your planning circle circled around these people and then they drop out and then you have to like find somebody else and then that uh, shuffles all your guests all your programming all the planning that you've done into totally other areas um, so that's probably the toughest I think I thought you were going to say money <laughs> oh. oh 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 yes you were absolutely <laughs> right. I wasn't thinking that way, but yes, the money is the toughest thing, without a doubt. As a fan convention, we can't just go to the bank and take mm -hmm. out a loan or, or do mm -hmm. any of the things, ha have investors or any other kind of stuff. We have to generate and raise the money ourselves to make an event happen. And the hotels put it, put their paw out, if you or convention center, depending on what kind of show you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, your, your, uh, your, the airlines do, the, the food this that every little thing yeah. and, and rightfully so the talent you know they're they're doing this uh, as a as a career as a business so they need to be paid as well uh, at the end of the day there's just sometimes there just isn't enough to go around and it's that's a challenge Absolutely. and if you had an unlimited budget uh i could stop answering emails about why tom baker and david tennant aren't at my show right <laughs> or peter capaldi yeah right we get right. that, yeah. Uh, but uh, actually, what Alan <laughs> said about the cancellations too is th about a challenge. Is how do our challenge is how do you insulate yourself from losing a guest? So if you have a, a, a nice swath of guests already, and I don't know, let's just we'll throw out a number. Let's say you have ten of them, and one mm -hmm. of them bows out. Well, nine of them are still strong enough to keep your event together. Um, what's mm -hmm. challenging for a fan con is if you invest in getting somebody, like, let's say like a Peter Capaldi, uh, let's say you actually had that ability to, to pull that off, and then he had bowed out because he's an Oscar-winning actor and director and writer, mm -hmm. and suddenly the, his project is taking his turn and he can't make it. That can be a game-changer and could potentially crush a small event. Absolutely. Um, you can't yeah. insulate yourself from that. You can insulate yourself if you have some writers, some directors, some classic series actors, uh, uh, some supporting actors. People will come just because it's a Doctor Who convention, but sometimes people come just for the one name, and that's the danger mm -hmm. of having that, that one giant guest. Well, and I think that that's kind of a situation, and, you know, and you're saying that we, as Doctor Who convention runners, aren't in competition with one another, but at the same time, there are are now so many Doctor Who conventions that people have options that they didn't have four years ago. And so people, you know, you, I kind of feel like sometimes you do have to take a risk and maybe not booking Peter Capaldi because, you know, that's, you know, an insurmountable thing, I think at this point with him still on the show and all that kind of stuff. But I think that you, I think that's one of the things when we're talking about being innovative, you, that's what you have to do to, keep your own event viable in a landscape where there are 25 different Doctor Who conventions. Ten years ago, there were three. Yeah. Yeah. And for many, many years, there were just Gallifrey and Chicago, and that was it. Yeah. So I think we're in a very different, very different Doctor Who convention world right now. Both Taylor and Alan have events that have established histories. Now, I'm, I'm approaching my fifth year, which I'm right. starting to get a bit of a history. Mm -hmm. Still, yeah. the newest of the three, 
And I can tell you our biggest hurdle in the first year wasn't money, surprisingly. It was um, in, in an era of having sort of fly-by-night conventions. And they have come and go for 30 years now that I've been a fan. You'll get conventions that will pop up and disappear and things like that. Mm-hmm. It, it was um, getting the audience to buy in to a first-year con. And that's... yeah. But the only reason I pulled it off was simply because I had done a podcast and people knew me in the community mm-hmm. already from from in the 80s being part of a, a major fan group to this decade, you know, the last decade being part of Doctor Who Podshock. Uh, if it wasn't for that, we would have had this huge hurdle to overcome with people going, well, I never heard of those guys. Yeah, I'll say I'll say for us. Now, you're saying Chicago has been around for a long time. That's true. Uh, We fight, I don't want to say the idea of stagnation, but we Mm. want to keep our convention new and fresh. And we have to be open to those ideas that will allow us to do that. Uh, We have kind of a struggle with guests are important versus programming and people are important. And that is also looking at the evolution of what does the fan run convention mean? What does by fans for fans mean in 2017? Hmm. It's not the same as it used to be 20 years ago. And that's something I am always trying to keep us aware of uh, because there are great fan run conventions that don't have major guests that are around the U S that are very successful, not necessarily doctor who, Mm -hmm. but other things too. You know, mm-hmm. looking at those examples, it, it there is an evolution. Uh, answering the question for what your demographic is is the challenge. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you uh, one more thing before we move on to last night's episode, um, and this is sort of along the lines of what you're just talking about. But what do you think sets your convention apart from most others? <laughs> it's, being competitive. It's, it's in Atlanta. <laughs> um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a tough one. I think mainly, I mean, I think all the conventions that I've been to have been really great. And I think that um, I've been, it's been a long time since I've been to Chicago. I haven't been to long island but it's definitely on my radar and i really want to go and i'm going to try to make it this the, this coming year um and the other ones that i've been to have all been great i think that uh what sets us apart is god that's hard to say because that makes it oh, I, don't, I don't know so y'all y'all somebody else answer first and then i'll come <laughs> actually alan to me you hit it on the head again you said atlanta um i think location has a lot to do with yeah one of the biggest selling points to your event is, especially for fans who travel, mm. where am I going? Mm-hmm. What am I going to see when I get there? You know, New York, Chicago, L.A., Atlanta. These are big cities. They're interesting cities with great tourist possibilities. I know that when I go to Chicago, for example, mm-hmm. um, and if I have an extra day, I'm going to go explore that city. Because there's so much to do there. It's so rich. And I think the, the same thing is an attraction to luring guests to your event. A guest will say, geez, I've never been there before. Mm-hmm. That's true. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know what? I really want to see and, and fill in the blank. You know, the Statue of Liberty or the Sears Tower or mm-hmm. Hollywood or, you know, you, you can you, you go on and on with what makes your thing a destination. 
I'd like to reiterate something just on Alan's behalf. As someone who lives in the Southeast, you know, to go to Gallifrey, I have to buy a plane ticket, and that's, you know, expensive to go to um, Chicago or New York. And that's quite a drive from North Carolina. Uh, Atlanta is, at least in proximity, a much closer convention for me. And, I mean, I've been once. I loved it. I'm planning on going every year. And it helps to make that plan, knowing that I can drive there in the first part of the morning. You know, get there Mm -hmm. without being too exhausted. Like, when I take off from work, it doesn't take uh, an entire day for me to get out in that direction. Now, I'm also very fortunate that my traveling companions, when I head up to New York, are uh, friends of mine. And and I... Part of the vacation for me is hanging out with them in an eight-hour car drive. But, you know, being able to go to Atlanta going, can I go to this convention? Sure, it's not that far. That really is a big deal for me. Well, you know, and when you're talking about location and then jumping back to uh, one of the previous questions, what is your biggest challenge this year? One of our biggest challenges oh, is going to be that we had a major interstate collapse. Oh, yeah. Oh, I you forgot. Know? Oh, so, I'm, yeah, it's awful. So people, are, oh. people who are used to coming are now going to have to, in some cases, find a, maybe a new way to get there. And that might be a challenge for people. I I would echo uh, <laughs> the sentiment of uh, location is key. Uh, this year, um, for instance, with our programming, we're trying to take advantage of the local scene, a little tidbit of uh, new information we're going to do something with improv because chicago has a major improv scene oh, some yeah. of our programming yes is going to be um revolving around that like some of our night programming and uh we're very excited but i feel like that might not have such an impact in a different area hmm. mm-hmm. i i love your hotel taylor i, I I'm, thank you <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chicago Tardis has a great hotel um, that just has a vibe to it that's just really nice. Uh, just as an example, they have, I think they have five elevators in their elevator we bay. We do, that's two more yeah. Like, so one of the challenges if you're in a hotel con is, well, geez, the, ho- the elevators always take forever to get here. <laughs> Not in Chicago, they don't. They're, there's like eight million of them. Um, <laughs> but but every, everything has its strength. You work to your work to your strength you know right. um taylor will also tell you the the biggest uh, a big challenge is thanksgiving weekend yeah That's, oh yes and it's so uh, it's so frustrating to figure out the answer to that question because we are listening to people when they're telling us that they want it to be changed and about three years ago we did a we we tried a major initiative to contact to communicate with all of our attendees, and three years ago we had basically what we what we consider our max um, ideal for that hotel space, and we were able to contact a majority of the people, gave them a survey uh, regarding the dates, uh, location, venue, and. About, I want to say, 70% of our attendees said, no, they want to keep it on that weekend. And I feel like at this point, we have more people saying, yeah, great. You know, we want to keep coming here than people complaining about it. But it's, you know, I want I want to do something for those people that cannot come on Thanksgiving. So I have it on Christmas. 
<laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be so much There's fun. your answer. Oh. <laughs> I bet you the hotel space would be real cheap. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> and you have a guaranteed uh, Doctor Who. Uh, you can right. watch Doctor Who. You know, you know it. You know that's going to be happening. Mm-hmm. It, although you probably have a difficult time getting guests. That's yeah. true. That is absolutely <laughs> true. Hey, speaking about episodes of Doctor Who, let's change things up just a little bit. Uh, last night, the the desert that was the Doctor Who televised scene kind of changed <laughs> into an oasis, and we got our first regular series episode uh, in what is essentially eighteen months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, to start off, I just, uh, kind of broad strokes. What did you think about last night's episode? Of course, I have the advantage of reading, uh, Alan's article from this morning. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Alan, why don't you go first? What did you think? New Doctor Who, A or nay? Uh, well, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, you, you have to remember that this is all about establishing a new companion, a new, relationship between that companion and the doctor um and so therefore other things might not take as much precedence like having a good monster and a and a really thoughtful storyline um as far as establishing the new companion i thought that was excellent but i mean i just felt like they kind of grabbed elements from waters of mars and just stuck it into this episode so that's my basic I enjoyed it. I give it a seven and a half out of ten. I uh, I loved it. I was really very hopeful about the new companion, Bill Potts. Uh, mm-hmm. I adore Pearl Mackey. I think she's fantastic, and uh, and I wasn't let down because I'm, she's not Clara, and I was not a fan of Clara. So uh, <laughs> I, I think I I knew in advance about the professor situation and how this season's going to go with that. Um, so I was looking forward to seeing how they would handle it. And I thought, I, I think they finally, it, it's, it's a shame that he's leaving, but like Capaldi's finally got the right tone for his doctor. This, mm-hmm. this wise professor tutoring a young student type relationship where he could be smart and brave and worldly. And she could be, you know, show me more and and not have it be all about kissing because, you know, Capaldi wasn't going to go there. Mm. No. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it. And, and I agree. It, you know, it wasn't all about the monster. It was about establishing, establishing Bill and that relationship. It, leave it to Moffat to write a story called The Pilot because they changed it yeah. from the girl right. star and her eye. Uh, mm-hmm. Changes it to The Pilot so when you hit it on Netflix sometime in the future. Everyone thinks that's the first episode. And yeah. it is a great starting point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because you reestablish the doctor. You, you, the companion does have to learn everything. And it's done slowly. It's not hitting you over the head. So I think uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I, and I'm, I was, it was very refreshing to have the show back and not be... The companion overshadowing the doctor, or um, having her be secretly something amazing that we just couldn't possibly wrap our head around. Oh, she mm-hmm. still could be. Give it time. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hopefully okay. not. I like the fact that she's just an average girl. That yeah. she's not something special. She's not the 
you know, whatever. She's just a girl who is open-minded and inquisitive and mm-hmm. excited about possibilities. That's what makes her a great character. I think the companion is best when they are made better because of their travels or their exposure to the Doctor. They Absolutely. should start amazing. They should they, they should go on a journey because Absolutely. they're the audience and we're going on the journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was writing a, uh, early this morning. I took some notes because I was writing a blog post for our um, website. And I wrote, someone sat down, took a breath, and hit the reset button. And that's what I felt about this episode. I Bill is a normal person, as we were saying. She feels normal. She feels like she's having that life that we're all having. Uh, we can relate to her, I think, a lot better than possibly Clara. I didn't dislike Clara like other people have, but I just think she's more relatable in general. And I love the line, you're safe in here and you always will be. Because yes. I feel like people right. think that about Doctor Who as a whole. It's I their agree. escapism. Um, it's their community. It's what they sit down and have watched for years. And that's really important. And it's, and it's practically the motto of a fan-run convention. That's true. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just generally, I loved it. I just loved it. And um, if there's any any time in the show for a new fan to jump in, this is it. Um, I love Bill. I've loved her. Even though we've barely seen her, I've loved her since that little clip that they did mm-hmm. a few months ago. And uh, she's real. She's honest, like Donna, who is... My mm-hmm. favorite of the new series, and and uh, I can totally see in her be a favorite of mine. Um, she's uh, she doesn't think like most companions. She never questions the doctor's age when he's been lecturing for fifty years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she knows what a mind wipe is. She's really clever. Um, I'll tell you, um, just generally, my wife is not a huge fan of Doctor Who. She's uh, she just watches it with me just because she knows I love it. <laughs> And uh, and there are times, you know, Matt Smith is her doctor, but uh, she still likes the show. But last night she was really, really into it. She really loved it, and she was horrified. The scene where Heather comes out of the pool and grabs Bill's face. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I loved it. It was really great. I want to echo something, a couple things that that uh, Brent said as well, <clears throat> and that all of you have, have sort of circled around. Um, one, it is really nice to have a companion who, you know, in a single line, what she's about, you know, the doctor says most people, when they don't understand something, they frown, but you smile. Yeah. Like there is your character right there. And she can, she can go in any number of ways that she wants, but it is really nice to know that Bill is the person who wants to learn. She has a, a desire to learn and she's excited about it. She's going to ask those questions. Um, and I know we talked about a couple of you mentioned Clara. Clara, I liked where her character sort of ended up. Like, I feel like it took three seasons to figure out what her deal was. Um, being the, the companion who becomes the doctor and realizes that, you know, that may not work for them. But Bill, I already, I feel like I got Bill. I feel like yeah. I got Bill and I'm on board with Bill. And I yeah. really dig that. I think that was, um, the best thing, and I want to throw one more thing out there. 
my wife also is not a huge Doctor Who fan, but she watches it because she knows I love it and I like. She wants to share that part of my life with me, and she watched it and she goes, "This is a good jumping on point." Hmm. But it, and I said, "Do you think it's better than the Eleventh Hour?" And she goes, "There's there's a comparison between these two. She said that the Eleventh Hour um, is about the personal relationship between the Doctor and the companion. It's it's very much who they are to each other. But this episode echoes something that Bill asks when he says, just call me the doctor. She says, doctor, what? Mm-hmm. In many ways, this is a great pilot for fans who know nothing about Doctor Who because it answers all the what questions about the show. Not so much who, but what. And I think that was uh, good. And I, I compare the two of those as maybe introductory episodes. I think one of my favorite scenes was, uh, you know, every new companion has their reaction to experiencing the TARDIS for the first time. And I think Bill's was one of the best where she's in it, but she doesn't even see it because she's staring out the window. I loved that. And, I, you know, th- on that topic, but a different angle, I hate the fact that Capaldi is leaving, partly because I love Capaldi and he's a genius and my favorite of the new doctors but also because that means they'll most likely change the TARDIS set. And this has been my favorite TARDIS set for possibly the whole 50-something years. Mm-hmm. I think it's gorgeous oh, wow. and amazing, and I hate to see them change it. I, I agree with everything you said. I love Peter Capaldi. I hate that he's leaving, especially mm-hmm. after seeing last night's episode, feeling that they've got his character and tone of the show Right. Now, again, we haven't seen the rest of the season, but as you're saying, this this, this sort of picking up after we've had this hiatus, it, it feels right, and, and it's just sad to think that it's just one season of him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that last year, though, I, I think that and I, uh, the first season, he was kind of crotchety. The second season, when they added the aging rocker angle, I loved it. I Me thought too. that that was the perfect... Mm-hmm. It summed him up. He was he was young, but he's old at the same time, and he he's like almost eight, uh, time displaced. And I I just thought it was brilliant. But adding in this professor angle mm-hmm. is the most perfect thing that you could have done with Capaldi's character. It's a it's a nice tip of the cap to Shada and many of the things we saw exactly asked. Um, also, you know, Capaldi is a big fan of the Pertwee era and being stuck mm-hmm. on Earth is, you know, he's not stuck, but he's he's got a base of operations, which is mm-hmm. uh, uh, again, a tip of the cap back to, to Pertwee and the unit days. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a great idea. It grounds the show a bit. But he has the ability to get in the TARDIS and go someplace, so he can, you can still wow the companion and also bring the audience along to something fantastic. I think this is a true showing of his evolution as the 12th Doctor, too, because you've got last season, it was like episode three, I think, where he has the cards. Like, he can't even socially interact with humans or (laughs) other entities without having these, you know, uh, cards where this is the appropriate way for him to act. But then he has this really good relationship with a young person that he sees has a gift or intelligence that they're not getting the opportunity to exercise that in whatever way. And then they have, you know, a history of, you know, you see that the, um, 
time passing, you know, where they have a relationship. And then that's when they run into the adventure. But they have that kind of personal relationship that's, you know, he's he's figuring it out. That's It seems like he's got that, um, he doesn't need the cards anymore. And I like that. That is the ideal place that Capaldi I got to say that I think that's uh, seasons eight and nine and now coming into 10 has been the most exciting time in modern Doctor Who for me. And a lot of it is because of Capaldi and a great deal of it is because of some of the way that the show has sort of evolved around him mm-hmm. has how the tone of it has changed. The approach has changed. They've done different things with some of the story uh, mixes and things like that. And I just think it is is there was there, there was a time when I started to feel like I'm the old guy. I don't fit in with this new crowd of you know Doctor Who fans. I don't I don't really connect with the show anymore. But man, this is this is like my time in Modern Who. I have loved the Capaldi years so much, can, can and I'm any, really excited about what happens for the rest of this season. Can anybody tell me what Matt Lucas is doing in the show? No, and I, I mean, love I, that. I'm, I'm not. Oh. A, I'm not oh. a hater, and, I'm, and I think they're they're keeping him properly in the background. But yes. right. What? Are, where are we going with that, though? Like, see, and I don't want to say anything here because I've read a few things and I have an idea. And it's like, uh, if you thought like the way TV is going now with other shows, you might be able to guess maybe what I was what I'm implying here. But I don't want to say it. All right. Well, I'll keep for you to message me after the show. I will. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was cool uh, at the beginning because it, during this whole break since uh, Christmas, everybody's talking about well, how, how is Nardole here? You know, yep. it's just a head, and and then right at the beginning, we find out like he's a what an android or a robot or something. Something. Yeah. Something. something. He's a robot that poops. He's like Apparently. a whole <laughs> I'm really excited um, that for all this time we've been wanting. Well, at least most people that I've talked to have been wanting, you know, a, a difference in the companion model. No more modern day Earth girls, you know. Please do a, a Jamie, or please do a, you know, a Zoe, or do a Leela. And you know, you're, you're afraid that that thing will never happen. It'll always be a modern day Earth girl. And then along com- comes Nardole, and they sort of slip in. Like he's just a guest character in a Christmas episode, and then just somehow he's now a companion. Like they just slipped this <laughs> male, uh, not from our time, not from our planet, and now we see, you know, not even really, maybe possibly humanoid because, he, uh, like, a spark plug or something falls out of his. I don't know, but like he's all of a sudden everything that's different about all the companions that we've had, and they just sort of slipped him in without us really even knowing that we're getting a new companion. And now we don't really know why he's. You know, we don't have really have much of a backstory. We don't have. You know the the why he's hanging around with the doctor. I think it's great. I think it's so exciting that we have just this guy. He's just this dude, and I think it's fantastic. I I'm I long a bit for the Doctor Jamie relationship. The oh yeah, the lost art of the buddy movie. Yes, you yeah. know those that that two male characters can just go do something cool together, and that's it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, we just don't see that anymore, uh, you know. And, and there's an opportunity there, but the, the dynamic has been established. And I'm afraid with 
uh, with Chris Chibnall coming in, it seems to be the directive is we need a young, handsome male lead to mm-hmm. go with girl, female, you know, the, the, the female lead so that there could be, again, this sort of un, um, unrecorded love aspect of it, which, of course, is, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that dynamic. It's just that why is that all of a sudden the formula? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually, it's the one reason why I think there won't be a female doctor. It's because then what do they do there? Uh, yes. Then well, the companion yeah. has to be male, and is the male, the, the male character going to fawn over the female? I, you know, I, I don't get where they would go with that. Because the doctor couldn't fawn over the companion. That's just outside of the character's ability to do. I was so hoping that with, with Capaldi coming in and him being a slightly older doctor that we would have a, a young guy as the companion who could be the you know, the quote unquote sex symbol of the show and you could have that that buddy movie kind of feel to it. You had a touch of that when Captain Jack joined yes. a Rose and and Christmas. Yes. yes. I also like the Christmas special from this past year. I like the dynamic of him. And Justin Chatwin's character. Yeah. Um, that was nice. If they could have, I don't necessarily say keep that character in the in the show, but even involved something like that into a new companion. Let me say I love Pearl Mackie. But, um, yeah, something like that would have also, I think, satisfied some of what you guys are talking about. That dynamic was a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, we have the companions that we have. I mean, you know, we can go on and, and talk about what we would like to see, but we currently have two companions now at the beginning of their run. I mean, we're only one episode into the Dr. Bill Nardole relationship, and the hope could be that it, we're having three companions who are very disparate uh, will have maybe a unique relationship between those that years from now we're going to go, man, you know what I wish they would do is go back to that doctor <laughs> and Bill and Nardole thing because yeah. no one yeah. no one tackles it quite like they do. Isn't it nice that they have X and Y and Z? I mean, there's that's the We're the never going to have a companion combination like that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't they have another companion that reflects the way I look and think? I I'm, want, a, I'm, I'm a, a out-of-shape bald robot. Guys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I let, listen. Let, let's let's say this. This is in, but the biggest truism. The current TARDIS team is probably the most perfect reflection of the viewer demographic that we've ever had on the yeah. TARDIS. Mm. And you know, I for one am happy to have uh, the companions that we have and relationship with the PAV. You know, mm-hmm. uh, as, yeah, uh, an educator, a nerd. And uh, an awkward... Anyway, so uh, I'm excited <laughs> to see where that takes us. Um, we may not have Pearl Mackie. We may or may not have Pearl Mackie as, a, as an impossible girl or a story arc. But we, but we have been hinted at a story arc that is his happening. And that's with the, the vault. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that as a... <clears throat> Uh, a teaser for a, a potential story arc. I mean, I don't want to say it's going to be the the season long arc. We don't know, but what are you thinking just for what they're teasing? 
Um, the most interesting thing to me is that it's planted right in the middle of a university. Um, the second most interesting thing to me is that if you look around in the background, you see other little things. Like there's this big board that has the words Mary Celeste on it. Mm-hmm. What the heck has that got to do with anything? And I, that's the thing that I'm most intrigued about so far. <laughs> and I think that Matt Lucas is going to be tied into that vault thing somehow. I think that he's around because of it or to be the doctor's guy who keeps an eye on it and checks on it or whatever. So I think that that's how he's going to be tied in. I missed the Marie Celeste. I'm going to have to go back and watch it a second time. Oh, yes. Harkening back to the, the chase. Yeah, exactly. I mean, another episode with Daleks that has the right. Mary Celeste in it. So, interesting. Maybe the vault contains a robotic Frankenstein. <laughs> or, <laughs> Dracula. or the first Doctor Android comes popping out. Oh my god. Oh, right. <laughs> or Morton Dill has been stuck in there, and it's really important we don't let him out. If it means Peter Purvis is back in the show, I'm totally on board. <laughs> any, any excuse to get Peter Purvis back on the show. Right. Absolutely. Have has have we do we have any thoughts about what the photograph of Susan is that just there for I have to be a, a crazy theory. Oh, Ooh, I've got lots okay. of crazy theories. But. I have a crazy theory and nobody laugh. <laughs> no, but really as I was sitting there watching, I'm thinking, okay. Could Bill possibly be the doctor's daughter? Because we see pictures of River and Susan. Mm -hmm. We've known since the beginning that Susan is his granddaughter. We've known for a few years that River's his wife. So what's the missing link? A daughter or a son? And, you know, we see the picture of her mother and the doctor in the shadow, like, taking Mm -hmm. the picture. But Mm -hmm. he could have done that that afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know, when she said, oh, I miss my mom. So he went back in time, took a picture. Yes, yeah. And that's yeah. how they present it, without a right. doubt. But, but you I, never hear anything about her father. Right. Yeah. They um they they start with the desk photos, and it seems like it's just going to be a, a small yeah tip of the cap. But then they right. linger on the Susan. Yes. Photo. I mean, a generous yes. He exactly. talks to it. He even like says mm-hmm. something like, shut up. "Oh, you shut <laughs> up." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think. I don't know. And we know Who knows Capaldi if maybe has, she'll be around for his re- regeneration. Capaldi oh, has stated yeah, oh, yes. times over his reign that he wants to meet Susan. So, mm-hmm. And we know that they've done things for him. We know that the Mondas Cybermen are in this season because that's what he wants. He wants to do his Cybermen. So it is very, very possible that this is yet another thing that they're doing at his request. Like well, this is... This is his dream, to have an episode with Susan. With Moffat going out the door, and apparently yes. same with Capaldi, why not just go out on a bang? I mean, they know... they Everyone knows Chibnall's going to hit the reset button. Oh, yeah. The publicity machine's going to go, you know, full on this time next year. Yeah. This current run is still enjoyable, the fans are going to enjoy it. The ratings are going to be strong because there's a base here. They're not looking, and, 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 the, and the proof of this is the fact that we saw nothing from BBC America outside of the, the general promotion that you would get for a new season. 
but we didn't mm-hmm. see any world tours or, or events or anything gearing up to this. They're saving us for a year from now. Yes. Think who's going to yeah. be watching this. Why would they promote something that's going to be over in a year? Um, it's kind of the same thing that's happening with Class. Class got canceled, and suddenly they've got themselves this albatross sitting on their schedule for right. <laughs> Yeah. So they're going to ride it out and wait till the reset button you know, goes in. Mm-hmm. We'll have a new doctor, a new showrunner. It's why I don't think Pearl Mackey is going to make the transition as well, which is a shame. Uh, but hasn't, hasn't that already been said? That she is only one season? I, I thought it had something that. to do with contracts. Yeah. Which doesn't really have anything to do with if that's true or not. But, yeah, yeah that's... But, but much, much like uh, Moffat hasn't really touched RTD stuff, I think the same thing's going to happen with Chimel. I think yeah, I agree. is anxious to, to move away from the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Uh, to whatever his vision of the show is going to be. Yeah. Um, we know already it's going to be a younger, probably male, handsome actor with a girl companion. It's, it's, it's not... It, 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 would, it, would take, it would take a lot to break that dynamic. They know that's the formula. And if you're a new right. guy, you don't monkey with the formula. Absolutely. Well, they won't let him. I think the BBC will protect that format. Right. He can work. He can work within that format. If it's a success, he can do whatever he wants. You know, he can tweak it from there. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. But uh, you know, I have a lot of I, I have a lot of faith. The show goes through these transitions. You know, a lot of people start mm-hmm. getting themselves all nervous. I listen. We're Doctor Who fans because it doesn't stay the same. Absolutely, right. <laughs> absolutely. Mm-hmm. And in five years, we'll be calling Chibnall's head. guys i appreciate you all being on here today um if you want to just go through one by one and just pimp your cons a little bit that would be great yeah my uh, we're doing who lanza it's coming up may 5th through 7th so it's the first weekend in may it's very very close up um in atlanta georgia you can find us at wholanta.com we have colin baker and Nicola Bryant as Six Doctor and Perry. We have Camille Kaduri, who played Jackie Tyler. Mm-hmm. We have Jamie Matheson, who is a Capaldi scriptwriter. He wrote Mummy on the Orient Express and Flatline and Girl Who Died and uh, Episode 5 of this coming season, of this current season. So unfortunately, our convention falls on the weekend of Episode 4. I was so hoping it would just magically work out where we were on Jamie's weekend, but unfortunately... We're one week off, um, and we got a lot of stuff going on. We have uh, we're on the same weekend as Free Comic Book Day, and we have a lot of great stuff that's tied into that, with an exclusive release from Titan Comics and uh, our own free comic book. And we're going to have a Skype uh, interview with uh, four of the creatives from Titan Comics, and it's going to be awesome. We're really excited. And I love the cover, by the way. I saw that on your uh, one of your oh. posts recently. Oh, cool! Thanks, thanks. Um, Long Island Li Who Five for Long Island Doctor Who um, is November tenth through twelfth, twenty seventeen, this year at the Hyatt Regency, Long Island. LongIslandDoctorWho.com, fully spelled out as the website, as well as on all the social media, of course. <coughs> mm-hmm. And it's still a little bit early, but 
Sylvester McCoy is our doctor this year, and we have John Leeson making a rare New York mm. area appearance, and Michael Troughton joins us as well. Oh, yay. Awesome. Uh, as some of our early guests, but there's many irons in the fire, and I'm sure that'll be <laughs> popping up over the next coming week, or two, or three. <laughs> Uh, Chicago TARDIS is 2017 is November 24th to 26th. We are at the Weston Lombard Yorktown Center, which is that nice hotel Ken was complimenting so wonderfully before. <laughs> uh, we have, we are, uh, social media is all, uh, at Chicago TARDIS, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and ChicagoTARDIS.com is our website. This year we have Colin Baker, Peter Davison, and Sylvester McCoy. As our doctors, we also have Sophie Aldred, uh, Lisa Greenwood, and Philip Olivier. They are Big Finish companions. Oh, yay. That's awesome. Yeah, and we also have Nicholas Briggs, uh, Jason Hay Gallery, and we will um, be adding more people in the next couple months, a classic Who and new series, because we always have at least one, usually two, pretty well-known new series guests. So... Look out for those updates if you want to follow us on social media. Well, that about does it. Uh, thank you so much, guests, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to spend this Sunday having a chat with you. Thank Thanks you very much so for much. having us. Oh, fantastic. And thank you, listeners, for joining us at Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom, stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. You can download the podcast directly from whoandcompany.lipson.com. You can also contact us on Twitter at Who and Company or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. A special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. See you next month. <laughs>